Good morning, Taproot. If you will remain standing for the reading of God's Word, we're going to continue our worship through the reading of Matthew 11. If you don't have your Bible with you, the words will be on the screen, but we will be reading the whole chapter today. So starting Matthew 11, verse 1. When I finished reading, um, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and we'll respond. Speak, Lord, your servants here. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds." Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago and sat cloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Speak Lord, your servants here. You may be seated. Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that your spirit will awaken in our hearts what you would have us to know and what you would have us to learn. Thank you for sending your son and for making known to us your kingdom, Lord. Fill taproot with a joy that we get to have this truth revealed to us and have our ears open today to hear it. I pray that you will be with Will and with his words, that you will um, enable him to teach with clarity um, and with joy the things that you've shown us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Sam. Good morning, Tapper Church. How are you doing? Good morning. It's good to see all your bright and shiny faces this wonderful January crispy morning. It's been it's cold out there, isn't it? It's still cold out there. I don't like that the sun comes out. I'm so glad it came out because I like when the clouds go away for a minute. It makes me happier, but then it's colder. And it's just a paradox for me, and I don't like it. But uh, I hope you're enjoying your chilly January so far. Um, Thank you um, to all the ladies. Thank you for our music team this morning. That was just wonderful. I enjoyed that time of worship and singing together so much. And thank you, Sam, for reading all of chapter 11. Um, As you maybe have noticed, if you've been with us in Matthew over the last year and some change, uh, for a while there, we were doing like really, really small chunks. And now here we are heading into some very, very large chunks. And uh, for some weird, odd wisdom, Mike and I decided to have, you know, him preach a giant chapter last week, and then I'm preaching all of 11 today. So I appreciate the ongoing prayers in this church, okay, family? So uh, we're going to work through this this morning. But uh, no, I look forward to this. I, I, I appreciate this. And I want to start off with a question for us. Have you ever been misunderstood? Anyone in here been misunderstood before? Under, undergone the situation where maybe someone misunderstood your words or your actions. Uh, there's this thing called, the, uh, you know, I heard it through the grapevine, or a little birdie told me. And so sometimes we hear of things that happened that someone else did because there's like this chain of, of conversation, and then someone completely misunderstands something about ourselves. And what does that feel like? Have you ever felt that before? Or those of you that have had a friendship or a relationship or a marriage... Have you ever felt misunderstood in communicating to one another? Uh, my wife and I, we call them squabbles. They're not fights, they're squabbles. Our kids actually use that term sometimes. They're like, Mom and Dad, are you squabbling right now? <laughs> but oftentimes, all of that, where that's coming from is a place of being misunderstood, right? And I want to like, empathize a little bit with Jesus this morning because we've all felt what it feels like to be misunderstood, whether our words are misunderstood, our actions are misunderstood, and when, we, when it gets back to us that that was what was received from what we said or what we did, we're like, wait, 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 no, no, you're completely misunderstanding my intentions. You're compl- that's not what I had intended. That's not what I was doing. And that feeling, can you, can you, can you relate to that feeling a little bit today? That like, it almost feels like betrayed, like, like oh no, you, you're missing it. You're missing what I intended. That's not what I meant to say when I said those words. That's not what I meant to make you feel when I, when I did or said that thing. It's, it's a painful experience, isn't it? And I would go on to say that Jesus Christ, our Messiah, is the most misunderstood figure in all of history. You with me? I think so. I genuinely think so. I think through history, 
I think part of that comes with being probably the most famous figure in all of history, but because part of being the most famous figure in all of history, he's also probably the most misunderstood figure in all of history. And that was no different than this time. And I, I love this passage because what we get today is we get to see Jesus be clearly misunderstood. And I think we can relate so much to Jesus as he's being misunderstood. And then we get to see, we get this like, we get to zoom in on Jesus' handle when he is misunderstood. How does he address it? What is his answer to these things? And I, and I want to get it also like, why do we often misunderstand Jesus? Why is it so easy? Or why was it happening for these people at this time? Why were they not understanding who Jesus was? I think particularly when it comes to something so important as the savior of the universe, it's easy to get our expectations disordered. Right? I think this really comes down to our expectations. We have expectations of how I want my Messiah to be. And when he shows up and doesn't check all those boxes exactly how I think it's going to happen and what direction and what way it's going to happen. It makes me misunderstand him because he's not matching up with the Messiah I have decided I wanted, right? I think that's so much what we're going to see in this story today is Jesus, what we need to get, Tapper Church, is that Jesus is not here to meet our expectations. Jesus is here to tell us who he is. And we have a responsibility to get to know Jesus on his terms. Let Jesus define who he is to us and therefore be transformed by it. And so my goal today is we're going to work through this narrative. We're going to see Jesus be misunderstood by a close friend named John the Baptist. We're going to see him misunderstood by the crowds that followed him. We're going to see him misunderstood by the cities he was doing much of his ministry in. And we're going we're gonna to be able to relate and understand like, why he was misunderstood so much in that time um, and how he's misunderstood even today. That um, he was misunderstood as Messiah, as prophet, and as Savior. Because we put our expectations, and by our terms and our order of how things should be, we get confused at who Jesus really is. But my goal is that if we can truly accept Jesus on his terms understand Jesus on who he says he is, that is the true path to that restfulness our souls long for. Amen? So let's dig into this today. Um, I got three points. Jesus, the misunderstood Messiah, Jesus, the misunderstood prophet, and Jesus, the misunderstood Savior. And my hope is that we can kind of just work through the narrative. Uh, Hopefully we're not here for too many hours. Um, This could very easily be three sermons. I'm just throwing that out there. I'm going to try real hard to keep it focused, and uh, we're going to dig in here and look into this, but uh, but I want to just see what we can learn about Jesus as we dig into this narrative today, okay? So point number one, Jesus, the misunderstood Messiah. So I'm just going to read a little bit here. Uh, When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he sent or he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. So kind of what we see here is uh, Jesus is, what Mike had preached on last Sunday was the, the instruction to send out the 12 to go preach the kingdom of heaven and repentance and that, um, to, to the house of Israel. And then so what does Jesus do? Does he take a vacation? It doesn't appear so. Matthew instructs us that during this time, Jesus continues going on teaching and preaching in the cities. 
as he's doing this, the crowds are still following him. They're hanging out with him while he's making his, his circuit around the Sea of Galilee. And that's where we see our Savior, Jesus, hanging out during this time. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we find another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So this is his response to John. So, okay, let's, let's stop there for a minute. So John the Baptist, he's an important figure that maybe you've heard a little bit about as you've maybe been around scripture or around church or anything like that. Uh, but John the Baptist is, is a really, really interesting figure. Uh, last time we saw John the Baptist, it was when Jesus went and got baptized. Jesus went out and met John the Baptist out in the wilderness. He was a man who was known for eating bugs and honey all the time and wearing uh, camel hair outfits. Uh, he was starting a new fashion out in the wilderness. Just imagine the scratchiness. And he was preaching the coming of the Messiah. That was his message. Is the Messiah is coming. The kingdom of heaven is coming. It's coming. Repent of your sins. The kingdom is here. And that was his message because he believed that he was a forerunner for the Messiah to come that his message was essential because he was saying, it's time, everybody. He's here, and he's coming, and he's going to be amazing, and all our lives are going to change. It's going to be incredible. So that was his message. And then Jesus comes out and visits him and decides to have John the Baptist baptize him. He says, yeah, baptize me. Really cool scene happens where Jesus is baptized in the water, and the heavens open up, and the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove, and the Father speaks, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. It's this really, really cool, beautiful scene that John the Baptist gets to be uh, privilege to see and experience. And so, um, so we're here, and um, the last time we saw him was this happy time where Jesus would have said, okay, peace out, I'm going to do, I'm going to go into the desert for a bit, and then I'm going to start my ministry. And John the Baptist is like, good, go, go do the Messiah thing. And it's great. We're like, bye, John. Here, we find out that John is now imprisoned. Um, he made an enemy of King Herod because his wife Herodia did not like John the Baptist. So uh, Herodia said, we don't like him, so now he's in prison. I think at that time, John would have been fine with this. It seems like he's willing to suffer by way of, say, wearing camel clothes all the time. You know, like he just, he was, he was okay with the life of suffering, that going to prison was no big deal because he'd done the thing. He accomplished the mission. He was the forerunner for the Messiah like he'd set out to do. And so going to prison, like whatever, I did my thing. It's awesome. Kingdom of heaven's coming. This is awesome. But then he's in prison and he gets reports from his disciples of, the, of basically Matthew chapter 4, through 10. The disciples come to him, his disciples do, and they say, John, the Jesus guy, he, uh, the one you, you said was the Messiah, so he's going around. He preached this really wacky sermon on this mountain. It was wild. Uh, a lot of good stuff in there, but it's not what I was expecting. And so far, he's gone around and healed a bunch of weirdos and cleansed a lot of demons out of some people, but not a whole lot of churning of like taking over and kicking Rome out of here and rising up to be the king of the nations like we want him to be. So we're a little concerned. And John's sitting there in prison being like, oh, oh no. Is this the Messiah that I wanted him to be? Because so far, Jesus' ministry, by all accounts from the outside looking in, was a complete failure. Right? 
because he was not the Messiah they expected. See, we, we need to understand Israel a little bit, that Jesus, or Israel expected Jesus to be a Messiah that showed up, kicked in the door of Rome, kicked them out of their country and their land, and then rose up to be the mighty nation Israel again, to have Jesus seated on the throne and have the people of Israel be the God's people on the land and be conquering and ruling and reigning for the rest of eternity. That was their Messiah. He was coming to set the captives free. That would have been a very common phrase. The chosen one, the coming one, the Messiah is going to set the captives free. And we're all captives because Rome are jerks. That was the concept. That was the mindset. And they wanted, they wanted their Messiah to be the Messiah who would come in and kick Rome out. And so John gets this report from his disciples and immediately can you imagine when you've really, really put your life into something and then you have that question mark of like, am I doing what I really want to be doing with my life? I think John was having that major moment. He's like, I'm now in prison. I thought I did the thing, but if this guy's not the guy and I got bamboozled by this Jesus guy, then this is trouble because now I'm in prison and I thought I did the thing and I was good, but now I'm not okay. And it's just so, so you kind of almost feel this like anxiety in John the Baptist being like, uh, disciples, go back and ask Jesus, are you really the guy? Because we need to know if you're the guy, because I need to know if I need to get broken out of prison here, because I got to go find the guy if you're not the guy, right? Can you kind of feel the like anxiety and the tension in the, in the, texture, in the text? Um, and so they come to Jesus and they ask him, are you the guy? Are you the one? And something that's really important for us to understand is John, the Baptist, had a very Isaiah understanding of the Messiah, which is really good and well. Because Isaiah's message over and over again is that God's going to come down and he is going to set the captives free. So again, his mindset is, is really, really good in Isaiah in the sense that like he gets it, that the captives need to be set free, right? So Jesus' response to John is this. And Jesus answered him, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news to preach to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. We need to understand this response is so gentle and kind, and it's meeting John the Baptist right where he's at, which is so much the way of our King Jesus and the way he relates to us, isn't it? He meets us where we're at. He speaks the word we need to hear. Because this, this is what John the Baptist needed for reassurance. Because what, I, what Jesus does here is he quotes basically Isaiah. He kind of cherry picks a bunch of different scriptures from Isaiah, probably the ones Isaiah was glossing over like we do so often, right? Missing those ones and just really hitting the like, set the captives free. Be the king of Israel. Like this is who the Messiah is gonna be. He's gonna be this thing. And so, so let's just look back really quick. I, I love this. So um, if we look at... Uh, Isaiah 35. I'm going to be reading, um, I'll, I'll start at uh, just verse 5. So Isaiah 35 says this, then, speaking of the Messiah, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like the deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. So do you see kind of what Jesus is doing here? His response to John is to remind him, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am that Messiah, buddy. 
Let's look at that prophet Isaiah. You love to like think and dwell on what he says about the Messiah, but let's look at those passages. Let's look at those moments that Isaiah is speaking about, um, what the Messiah really does look like. Another example is uh, Isaiah 61, just verse one is really, really good. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison of those who are bound. So Jesus, in a very kind way, in a very reassuring way, says to John the Baptist, yes, you can feel confident. I am the one. And so then, as we move on, we look at this, and knowing that Jesus has now been misunderstood by someone who, who would have been one of his biggest fans in the ti- at that time. And he responds so kindly and so gently and so intentionally. We see Jesus continue to talk about John. So picking up in verse 7 of, of chapter 11 in Matthew, it says, as, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. And now Jesus quotes Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. He says, behold, I send, and just know in Malachi it says the Lord sends, Jesus is okay putting himself in the Lord's spot. Anyways, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets of the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is, the, who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. We'll stop there for now. A um, lot, of, lot of interesting stuff happens here. So first of all, Jesus does confirm that he is the Messiah to John. Then he, he sends the disciples of John back to go give him this message about um, that basically saying, yes, I'm the Messiah. And then Jesus turns to the crowds who are following him, and he goes back to teaching them. And he addresses this situation that's just come up where the disciples have come and shown that John the Baptist is doubting that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus' response to them is, yes, John is the greatest of all people born of women. What a compliment from Jesus Christ, amen? Like, he, like it's just this really, really, like, I, he says this about John right after John has shown massive doubt in Jesus as the Messiah. But Jesus still says that John is the greatest born of women. And he then goes on further to confirm that not only is John this prophet who is, who is preaching a good word of repentance to the people of Israel, but that he's actually this specific messenger brought up in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, who is to be the forerunner to pave the way for the Messiah. Jesus confirms all of this and then goes on to confirm a common Jewish folklore understanding of Elijah. Do you guys remember the prophet Elijah? 
This is so weird, and we're not going to dig in super deep here because uh, it kind of messes with our brain a little bit. But Elijah was this really amazing prophet who had really big issues with the bad kings of his day too, and they wanted to behead him as well. Um, but Elijah did amazing, powerful things in the name of the Lord and still continued to doubt the Lord. It's kind of interesting how parallel John and Elijah really are. And so uh, Jesus goes on to confirm, if, if you'll hear it, if you'll receive it, yeah, this is, this, is, this is in a sense Elijah. Now, here's the thing. The Bible never teaches reincarnation. It does teach incarnation because God became a man named Jesus. Amen? But uh, it doesn't teach like you die and your soul can get reborn into something or someone else. That's not, that's not ever biblical or anything like that. It's more that Jesus understands that John the Baptist is fulfilling what the, the people of Israel would have understood Elijah coming back to do to pave the way for the Messiah to come. And so he's saying, if you'll hear it, yeah, sure, this is Elijah. Because that would have been a very common thing. As a matter of fact, we see that a lot in the story of Jesus. Um, a lot of people confuse Jesus as being Elijah because they just believe Elijah's going to show up. It's not very clear in the Old Testament that's exactly what's going to happen, but that's just the belief. Elijah's got to come back. He left on that really cool chariot to go up into heaven, and he's got to come back sometime, right, and tell us about the Savior of the universe. That would be really great. And so Jesus is just confirming, listen, John the Baptist is awesome. He's, a good, he's good stuff, that John the Baptist is. As a matter of fact, he is a prophet, and he is the messenger who is the forerunner of the Messiah. So if you notice... Jesus is not only confirming that John the Baptist is this messenger who's the forerunner of the Messiah, but what else is he confirming? Jesus himself is confirming to the crowds, I'm the Messiah. He's giving them a heads up, yeah, yeah, I'm the guy. I am who is coming to set the captives free. And so as we continue to read, Picking up in verse 16, it says, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. And sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. I think this is so interesting. This is Jesus kind of um, being a little snarky to the people of Israel. <laughs> because what he's saying here is, um, it's a picture like this. Have you ever, like if you've ever had kids, or if you have babysat kids, or you've ever just been in a room with two kids playing, Okay, I think that's a lot of us. And one kid is playing a really fun, awesome game. And then another kid comes up and says, I would like to play a different game, which is not how that goes. But you come to this point where if anyone has been in this room and there's two different mentalities of like how we want to play the game, what happens? Yeah, all heck breaks loose. I soften that for you. Because <laughs> the, the, like, it, it's like two kingdoms now are going to battle each other, and they're going to get all lost in confusion and nonsense, right? Because that's just how it goes. It's, it's, we got to work through our issues. Um, I have children. I see this daily. And so that's kind of what Jesus is saying, is that, that, that you wanted me to play the game you wanted to play. You wanted me and John to show up how you wanted us to show up. We didn't do what you did, so you threw a giant fit. That's basically what Jesus is calling out in this text. And look at this. This is the way he kind of sums it up. He says, for John came neither eating or drinking, and they say, he has a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So what is, John, what is Jesus pointing at here? 
He's saying your expectations of who the Messiah is to be is always going to cloud your judgment of who Jesus really is. It's always going to. If we put our expectations up in front of who Jesus says he is, we will misunderstand him. Because Jesus makes this point. John showed up and was really, really conservative with the way he lived life. Extremely conservative. He watched what he ate. He watched what he drank. He lived a very scarce life. Wore yucky clothes. That's how he came and did things. And you all call him a demon because he doesn't fit in your box. And then I show up and Jesus is eating with people and drinking with people and he's hanging out with the sinners and he's going into the tax collector's homes and he's spending time with those who are brokenhearted and need their captive souls set free and they call him a glutton and a drunkard because they misunderstand him because he doesn't fit in their box. This is, this is still what we do today, right? If someone doesn't match up with us or we want to slander somebody we bring up false things about things we think are false about them, right? I mean, if we watch the news at all, that's all that happens. One side is saying false things about the other side, and the other side is saying false things about the other side because it's, that's what we do when someone doesn't fit in the box the way we want them to fit. We try to tear their name down because they threaten us, because they're not who we want them to be. Unfortunately, we do this to Jesus often. The people were doing this to Jesus. They were willing to call him a glutton and a drunkard, and then, ooh, the mean insult, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That would have been a way of just really dragging Jesus' name through the dirt because he was not who they wanted him to be. And so as we look at this and we, we ask ourselves, <clears throat> is Jesus my Messiah? On this side of history, on this side of the cross, on this side of the empty tomb, we know the victory of King Jesus. We know that Jesus did die on a cross, that he was buried for three days, and then on that third day, he rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death and then ascended into heaven after he spent lots of time with his close friends and telling them about the coming kingdom of heaven, the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is, like, we understand this on this side of history, on this side of the cross. Let's do well to learn from the mistake of Jesus' contemporaries, and let's do well to accept Jesus as who he says he is. How do we do that? How do we accept him as the Messiah, as the anointed one, the chosen one? We accept him by, well, I'm going I'm to point this out, we get to know him through his word. We, we love the, uh, the Bible Project has a, has a phrase that's, that we believe that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And we, we like that here at Tapper Church. That's a good sentence. It's a unified story that leads to Jesus. This whole thing is pointing to us who is the Messiah, who he is. And if we continue to just kind of like play pretend and guess at who we think Jesus is and get him to want, want him to be how we want him to be, we will miss him. But if we know who he is by following him and getting close to him through his word, we will so much more clearly see who he is 
and receive him as our Messiah. Let's continue on. So my second point is Jesus, the misunderstood prophet. Um, This next paragraph is a paragraph that's very often misunderstood. So I'll get into that, but let's, let's look at this, okay? It says this. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be brought down to Hades? For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the, last, for the land of Sodom than for you. So it's like, we read that, and I think our automatic feelings are kind of like, like whoa, prickly Jesus is coming out, right? Ooh, he got a little, little heated there. And I, and I, I think he's, I think what we're feeling, what we're seeing here in this text is, is a very emotionally charged Jesus. He is feeling, feels right now. We've said that like for four weeks in a row. Let's keep going. Okay, Jesus is feeling things. This is an emotional response because this is the area where Jesus has been doing this ministry and he's, he's, he's working through this process of talking to the crowds about how they've misunderstood him as the Messiah. And then he decides to go on and to talk about these cities where he's been doing much of his ministry. So, first of all, um, who is Jesus talking to in this paragraph? Cities, right? Good answer, everybody. Glad you're with me. All right. So, in how many cities? Someone said two. Three. Three cities. Okay, we got got Capernaum. How do you say that one? Come on. Uh, Bethsaida and Chorazin, okay? These three cities. Um, This is where Jesus has been kind of, this has been a circuit where he's been doing his thing. So when we've been studying through the last few chapters of Matthew, all the way since after Sermon on the Mount, so 8, 9, 10, that's all been happening in these cities, these these works, these mighty works of of, uh, cleansing a leper and healing a... um, a, a centurion's son, and uh, healing Peter's mother-in-law, and casting out demons of some people that were being pretty wild. And uh, this is where he's been doing his ministries in these three cities. And so his whole point is, is he's saying, all right, in these three cities where I've been doing my ministry, woe to you. That, that's, a, that's a very strong statement. This is a strong, guttural statement. This woe is a word that's kind of like revile or or. Or it was it would it, like the word woe doesn't even capture it. It's more like a like a large guttural growl of frustration, you know, like like it's just this it's this feeling of of it's something that they would have exclaimed to expl- to exude much feeling, and so he talks about these three cities: Tyre, Sidon, and or no, he talks about sorry, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, and he compares them to Tyre and Sidon, which would have been uh, very Greek cities where Jesus was not currently doing his ministry in who would have not been very much observant of the law and the Torah and Moses and temple worship. They would not have observed that very much. And then he goes on to compare Capernaum, where he was his home, where he was doing ministry out of. He was comparing Capernaum to Sodom. 
If you guys are familiar with your Old Testament of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because they were unrepentant and they would not obey God and they were doing terrible, terrible things. And so Jesus compares them to that. So what I want to look at is I want to just look at these three cities and try to really understand Jesus here. These often get proclaimed as kind of like a judgment text. And don't get me wrong, I think there's some judgment here because Jesus is so multifaceted. I think Jesus is really wearing his prophet hat here. This is like Jesus being good prophet Jesus. And we'll explain that a little bit in just a moment. But a couple things we need to understand from here. There's that word Hades in there. What do you think Hades represents? Response is strong today, church. That's okay. So uh, Hades, oftentimes we kind of of just like equal Hades to hell, right? We kind of think Hades is is the equality of hell. And and I just want to say it's not. Um, It's actually kind of unfortunate because the word Hades is one of those Greek words that they for some reason decided not to translate into English for us. So the word Hades actually just means the grave. And this would have been hailing back to much prophetic literature Jesus is mirroring prophetic literature from the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets, because they often would say things like this. Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, in many ways, would talk about how everybody, listen, repent, turn from your current ways, turn to the ways and go the direction of God, follow his law and his good path, and if you do, you won't have to experience the terrible things that are to come. But if you do not repent, you will get swallowed up by the jaws of the grave, or Hades, right? That was like the concept. And it was this picture of being wiped out. It was, it's a picture of death, of destruction, of an end. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's speaking to the cities that he's been doing ministry in for this whole time. And we have to ask the question, why did Jesus do ministry here? There's a reason. Oftentimes we just kind of like, we just kind of go like, well, Jesus did whatever Jesus wanted to. That's great. That's a cool answer. But I think there's a reason. And it gets really, really clear here by the way Jesus responds to these cities. But he talks about how you will be brought down to the grave for the mighty works done in you If they would have been done in these other places, they would have repented. So his big woe here is that they were unwilling to repent. They were unwilling, and this is what repent means. Instead of going this way, you turn around and you go the other way. That's what repent means, okay? So what he's calling to these cities is, and that's been his message the whole time, is you're going to keep going this way, but if you keep going this way, disaster looms. So quit going that direction. Stop. 180, followed King Jesus. Follow the Torah. Follow our Lord. Go his direction. And what Jesus is saying here, and he's putting himself really, really um, as a unique prophet because he's the Messiah, is he's saying, follow me to these cities. Follow my way to these cities. And so, um, so what Jesus is getting at is that the direction you're going will lead to destruction. Now, what we often do is we kind of take these prophetic warnings, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and we we kind of think of them like, well, because God's mad at them and they didn't do what God wanted, God unleashed a terrible thing on them. Right? We, we, We do that a lot. 
But here's the thing we have to understand. When we read Old Testament prophets, ones that were there before the, the exile into Babylon, what they realized was that um, the role of a prophet is more of one who has the ability to see the impending outcome of people's, of a group of people's actions, is able to see if they continue on this path that is not the way of the Lord, they will be wiped out. And not because God is just mad and wants to throw fireballs at them, but because their actions have a natural outcome that is not good for them. Do you see that? The prophets could see that, that they knew that Israel was, as they continued to not follow God and to worship other gods and to intermarry amongst the different nations and to not obey what the Torah had instructed them to do, the natural outcome of those actions was that they, Babylon at some point was going to come over and wipe them out because they wouldn't be a strong nation who actually obeyed and followed the Lord and had him on their side. And so the prophets were not just casting doom and gloom on the nations. They were saying, there is doom and gloom coming if you don't follow the Lord, if you don't repent. That's the message of the prophets. The prophets would have loved to have Israel hear their words and go, oh yeah, we probably all should do this differently. We're not doing what God has called us to do. Let's change our actions and then let's become a mighty nation this way. And then God would have been like, sweet, this is awesome. They're doing what I told them to do. That would have been all good and well. But that's not what happened, right? Because unfortunately, the stubbornness of man is pervasive, right? And so they continued on as we saw and then Babylon came and wiped them out. And Israel has not been free or underneath bondage since Babylon came and sent them away. Even when they came home, they were still in bondage, and they have been ever since. And that's the whole mindset. They want, a, they want a Savior. They want a Messiah to come and set them free. So prophet Jesus here is saying, woe to you, you cities that I've been in and doing ministry in. And so here's, here's what I want to say. Is, uh, I have a picture. I have a picture of uh, Mount Arbel here. There we go. Isn't that pretty? So those are, and those are nice people over there hanging out on the cliff. Uh, but so what we're looking at is the Sea of Galilee. And if you can kind of see those little settlements, um, some of those are actually some of the places that we're talking about in this text here today. So there's uh, um, Capernaum is going to be at the top of there. You know, you got Bethsaida way over there and Chorazin somewhere over this direction. But this would have been kind of the region Jesus was literally talking to, talking about. So as he, as he kind of says, whoa, here, we can look at this. And this, this is a cool little mountain called Mount Arbel. It's like a, a nice little, like if you went today, it's like a 45-minute hike to the top, and you get this really awesome view of a place where Jesus did much of his ministry. Very, very cool. I, I would love to go see that someday. Um, very, very cool situation. Here's the thing. In Jesus' day, there would have been no way to go up to this mountain. No possible way. For the common person to be like, you know, I'm going to go hike to the top of this mountain so I can get a cool view of where Jesus was doing ministry. They couldn't have done it. The reason being was Mount Arbel was the encampment, the secret encampment to the zealot party in Jesus' time. So who are the zealot party? The zealot party are the, the Israelites, the Jewish men and women who were getting ready to overthrow the Roman government. So their whole thing was... We want the Roman government gone, so let's start secretly having these meetings and storing resources in this mountain that we're seeing from in this picture. Isn't that crazy? And so you would have imagined resources and weapons and secret meetings happening in the caves underneath this mountain. And guess where all those people lived and came from? Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. 
This, excuse my Hamilton reference, this was a powder keg about to explode. This was the place where all of the tension was brewing. There was going to end up being, this was the fuse that when this place blew up, led to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. The very destruction Jesus continues to proclaim is going to happen on the day of judgment when <laughs> Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. It starts here. When all these wild people are ready to overthrow the Roman government, this is the group of people that got everyone riled up enough that Rome said, well, enough, we're going to destroy you. So Jesus is here saying, listen to my words. Repent and follow what I said on the Sermon on the Mount. Follow my way. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemy. Pray for your enemy. The Sermon on the Mount language, the way of Jesus is what he was calling people to. And they were like, no, 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 we want to go blow up Rome. We are not changing. They got to go. Your word, Jesus, isn't the Messiah word we wanted. We wanted a Messiah that was going to join us on our conquest to conquer Rome, but you're not doing that. So we're going to keep going this way. We're going we're to get rid of them. We're going to fight them. We're going to battle. And he's saying woe to them because their natural consequences are going to lead to their destruction. What a good prophet, right? Like he, doesn't, he doesn't want doom and gloom on these places. He wants repentance because he knows his way is the way. And to continue to stir up violence and anger and fighting and war is not the answer. The way of Jesus is the answer. And it's that calling of the upside-down kingdom that Jesus is calling people to repent to, but they're not doing it. And he's saying, dang it, this stinks. The doom that's to come is going to be rough. It's going to be bad. And what Jesus wanted was he wanted people to see him doing these mighty works. He wanted the people to see him make the blind see and make the lame walk and for them to go, whoa, this is new. I want something different and to see transformed lives and to see these cities transform. But they only chalked Jesus up to a pretty cool genie that would like, say yes to their wishes and they did not follow the way of Jesus. And they weren't doing it to this point. And that's why he says this emotional statement of woe over these cities, because he knows their impending doom. And then let's move into our third point, Jesus, the misunderstood Savior. This is Jesus' response after this emotional interaction. He says this, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we can imagine Jesus um, publicly getting done with this emotional outcry of woe over these cities and proph prophesying that the doom is going to be rough and if only they would change and change their ways. And we see, we get this recorded prayer of Jesus where he goes to the Father and prays. Do you see that? He's praying to his father now. So we've moved from John the Baptist's disciples to the crowds to this 
emotional outburst, and I don't say that in an unkind way. This is like how Jesus was feeling about these cities, into this moment of prayer. Even just following Jesus in that, like, it's so, so good. But he, he says, thanks, Father, that uh, you've revealed this, these things to little children. Um, this word chil- little children would have been, um, typically in that day, that day and age, would have been uh, an unkind thing to say. To call someone a little children was not very nice. Matter of fact, uh, later on, people who followed Jesus were going to be called little Christ. Now, we're, that's where we get the word Christian, because it, like it was a mean word to say to people that were being followers of Jesus, because they were like little Christ. And it was based off of this term that Jesus is saying, thank you, Father, that you've revealed these things to the little children, to the runts, to the lamos. That was a little 90s, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, and I just, I just, I, I think this is so interesting, but this is what we see. The proud can't get over their pride, but the humble have the ability to, to need a Savior enough to understand who the Savior is. And so Jesus notices and recognizes, and he says, thank you, Father, you've revealed these things to little children, for this must have been your will. This is your gracious will. And then Jesus says a very kingly thing here. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus is putting on his king crown in this moment and saying, all things have been handed over to me. That's a big sentence that got recorded in his prayer here. He's saying, I'm the king. He's revealing a little bit of who he is to this crowd of people that are overhearing this prayer, and it's so interesting. And he then, he calls the people to something, the runts. Let's be runts, Tapper Church. Can we be the runts? I would love to be the runts with you all. Let's be the runts. Let's hear Jesus as who he is. Let's accept Jesus on his terms. This is what he says. He calls to them. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take, your yoke upon, or take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus here begins to unveil who he is to the little children, to the runts. And he invites them to find rest by hitching their burdens to him. He's inviting them to repent. This is all repentance, guys. All of this is change your ways. Get off your throne Put Jesus on the throne of your life, of your family's life, of the city's life, of this church's life. Jesus is king. Let's not misunderstand him as the perfect Messiah. Let's not misunderstand him as a loving prophet. Let's not misunderstand him as our good savior. He is the king. Let's put him on the throne. Let's turn from our ways and turn to his ways. Let's follow King Jesus is what he's calling us to. We have to change. Um, Before we kind of wrap up here, have you guys seen Les Mis? Les Miserables? Uh, I heard this illustration when I was doing a little study this week, and it was, it was really, really helpful for me, because I think this really gets at the heart of what is being asked here, like the turmoil we all have to go through. So Les Miserables, is, is, it makes me really happy, even if it makes you know, everyone in the character in the story very miserable, but uh, it's this really, really cool uh, book, and then play, and then now movie about this character named Jean Valjean, okay? I really hope that 50% of you are singing songs in your head right now. That would make me really happy. 
Uh, Jean Valjean, uh, he gets thrown in prison for many years because he stole a loaf of bread to feed his family. And then Jean Valjean becomes a free man finally. His, his, actually, he tries to become free early, and he doesn't get to be free, and so they throw him in jail even longer. So his, his, his jail sentence for stealing a loaf of bread gets extended because he raises his hand and says, can I be free today? And they're like, no. And so he, he, he's in jail for a very long time, and he becomes free. But unfortunately, even though he's free, he's not really free because he's a previous convict, and nobody will hire him to do anything. He can't get a job anywhere, Okay because he's got this mar on his credit report, right? And, uh, and so Jean Valjean is just going about and kind of just scraping by, and he's continuing to steal here and there. But he eventually goes and stays at a monastery with this bishop. And this bishop shows him extreme kindness and gives him this really, really great gift of grace by feeding him this amazing meal, giving him a place to stay, and basically preaching to him the gospel through his actions, through his words. This is a really, really cool moment. This bishop is a, is a rock star. I like this guy a lot. And, uh, and so this bishop shows this kindness. But the whole time that Jean Valjean's in there eating his dinner as this grungy kind of thief guy who's angry and frustrated about the system, he's looking around and seeing all the silver everywhere. And so in the night, he goes into the kitchen area and he steals all the silverware and he jets from the monastery. So after this bishop has shown him this extreme kindness, he goes and steals from the bishop and runs away. Well, in the night, he gets arrested. Some police officers grab him. They drag him back to the monastery, and they throw him in front of the bishop uh, the next morning and say, We've, we caught this man who stole all these things from you. And this is a really cool moment because the bishop then shows an extreme act of grace, right? Where the, he says, oh, Jean Valjean, what were you doing? You left so quickly, you forgot these silver candlesticks as well. So instead of convicting this man and saying, yes, he has broken the law and he stole from me that dog after I fed him and everything and showed so much kindness, he stole from me, throw him in jail for the rest of his life. That, he could have absolutely done that. But instead, he blows Jean Valjean's mind by showing him an extreme act of grace and kindness. But here's the thing, though. Even though this amazing, mighty work happened in Jean Valjean's life, if we read the books and even a little bit in one of the songs... Uh, from the play, it's uh, Jean Valjean is not very happy about this moment. Even this extreme act of kindness where he was given even more from the bishop. And they knew, they looked at each other and the bishop says, now Jean Valjean, you have a choice because that is the truth. When we, when we experience extreme acts, mighty acts of grace, we have a choice at that point. Do we change or do we continue on? Do we take the path offered to us or do we keep going on the path we've, continued, we've been carving out? Do we continue to be the king of our lives, the queen of our lives, or do we allow something new to take place? And that's the act of repentance and that's what we're called to. But see, Jean Valjean sits here and he gets angry about this because he's like, who was that dang bishop? He's ruined my life by this moment because now I have to choose to either become a different person or I will probably spend the rest of my days in jail. And he's faced with that inner turmoil moment. And if we read the story, we know Jean Valjean kind of goes, takes the path of grace. He takes the path of transformation. He becomes a new person. Because he, he, he knows he can, there's better out there. He actually believes in the mighty gift that was offered to him. And he takes the path of new. He repents. And we're faced with that as well. And that's kind of what Jesus is getting at here. He's speaking to the runts and he's saying to them, 
those who will listen, those who will have the mighty works done on them, who will hear who Jesus is and accept, accept him on who he is, he says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He offers to us the very thing our souls desire most. And that's what he says. He doesn't say just give me your yoke, give me your burden. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's the way we need to think of it. Every one of us is carrying a burden, right? We all are. Every one of us is carrying around our pack, our burden, the thing, whatever it is. We're going around with it every day of our life. We've got the things in there. We've got things like, like our finances, our jobs, our, our assets, our families, our kids, our spouses, our friends, our all of it's in this bag, and it's a heavy bag. It's a heavy burden. We all can like relate to this, right? It's a heavy burden. This is what Jesus says. He says, come to me. I have a really cool wagon shop, I have, and I, I'm giving them away for free to anyone who will take my wagon. And it's like you get to come to this wagon shop that Jesus is standing at, and he says, let's, watch this. Let's take your burden. Let's put it in this wagon. And then let's, let's put that yoke on you. Now we've got a cool tool called, called living the way of Jesus. That's what the wagons really represent in this little illustration, just so you know, it's the way of Jesus. As we live the way of Jesus, we get really cool wagons to put our burdens in, and then we get a cool yoke we get to put on that makes the like, 50-pound weight of our burden now like 25 pounds. It's amazing. It's a weird technology that's in history, it's, like, invented by human beings and God. So, so we put our burden in Jesus' cool wagon thing called living the way of the Sermon on the Mount, Following the way of Jesus is this wagon. And then Jesus then loads us up and puts us in the yoke, which is this cool little tool crossbar thing that was designed to you know, go on the animal. We're, we're the animal in this illustration. And, and we get to do this. But, but then, here's what's cool too. Almost most, most yokes are really cool because you stick two animals together, right? It's usually like a team that get to plow that field amazingly. And I believe that's the imagery here. That not only are we now in the yoke continuing to do the work of the kingdom of God and we're following the way of Jesus by putting on our Sermon on the Mount or live life the way of Jesus wagon, but then Jesus straps in with us, right? He says, let's do this. Let's keep going. This is where you're gonna find true rest. Not from, have you guys ever just had a full day off where you literally did nothing? Yeah, I never feel rested after that day. I really don't. Some of you are like, oh, I feel super rested. What, I, what I'll do is I'll be like, cool, I can watch movies and play video games all day. And then like 12 hours later, I feel like yucky. It's because we're, as human beings, we're designed to do something. We are, we're designed, we're made to do something. We're made to go and join the redemptive work of our Savior, Jesus. And he calls us to him and he says, I will never leave you. Isn't that, that's the great commission, Right? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Till the end of the age, I will be with you, is the way Jesus ends that sentence. And that's a picture here. He's in the yoke with us, but man, we gotta put on his wagon. There's no way to invent our own wagon. We have to do it his way. We have to accept Jesus on, his, on who he says he is. We need to put our expectations aside and we need to say, who are you? And how do we do that? I'm gonna come back to this Unified story that leads to Jesus. This, getting close to this. Being with him. And we're all different. I'm not gonna tell you like, okay, you gotta have your 15-minute chunk in the morning. 
Like some of you are, are weird and you need other times in the day or other moments or different rhythms and different patterns. All I'm asking is that we get close to our Savior Jesus. We draw near to him. We learn his wagon. We learn his ways and we go those ways. And we experience the rest our souls are longing for. I want to recommend this. If you need help, so, so first this, I'm just going to say that. The Bible, God's word, let's come here. But if we need a little help, we give these away for free. This book is literally called Gentle and Lowly because it's based off this passage. This is a whole book that, that does a really good job of helping us to dispel our expected misunderstandings of Jesus and saying who Jesus really is over and over and over again. They're like 15-minute chapters. They're, every one of them has blown my mind. And so if you want a little help, read this book. But, but get close to Jesus through who he says he is. Amen? Let's do it together. Let's be a whole bunch of yoke-wielding, Jesus-with-us, wagon-carrying rock stars for the kingdom. Amen? Let me pray. Father, you're so good. I love you, and I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your word. I ask that you'd bless us today as we, as we just see this and you reveal yourself to us as, as a Messiah and as this prophet who cares about where we're headed and what we're doing to our lives and as the Savior who invites us to take on your yoke, to, to take on your burden, to learn from your teachings, to, to be followers of who you are. And I pray that, God, we would take that to heart and we would truly be transformed and we would not be faced with this amazing, amazing, mighty gift of grace and then go back to our yucky lives, but that we would, be, we would become present to who you are and the way you show up in our lives, the way that you demonstrate your goodness to us, and then we would be transformed. We'd be new things. And we would, we would live different lives. We'd be, we, we would experience that rest our souls long for. Thank you for loving us today. Thank you for the grace of your son, Jesus. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that's with us. And thank you that uh, we have this opportunity to follow you and to live life according to the way you've called us to live it and then be truly freed from being captives of our sin and death. We love you and it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.